the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Radio. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me. from the National Prayer Chapel. The Lord God of Heaven wants to come and he wants to have us prepare the way of the Lord and to make straight a path for him. But Jesus doesn't want to just come to the world. He wants to come and literally enter into our hearts. 
He wants to live in us. So when Christ comes to a person, it's abundantly evident that he has come. It's not hard to recognize a person who has been filled with the Spirit of God. It's amazing what happens when Jesus comes and begins to enter into the heart. When he comes into a house, he comes into a church. The story is told of Charles Finney as he was in a New England town holding a revival. And a mile away from that revival, he began to feel conviction as the Spirit of God began to come upon him. The Lord comes with great power. And when he comes with that power, he also brings blessings. Now, it's impossible to have Jesus and not have blessings. Now, the question is, how do we begin to enter into Jesus? How do we begin to enter into him? And how do we allow him to enter into us in such a way that everything in our hearts, everything in our lives is changed, is transformed? What is the work of preparation necessary for that to occur? Well, the first step is that we have to invite Jesus. We have to invite him. And so I want to take just a minute and I want to invite Jesus to come and to be present in this broadcast. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And I ask that you would come now and enter every heart, that you would come now and enter into the words that are spoken, that, Lord, you could have the supremacy. Lord, you are beautiful. And I ask now that you would move in great power and come in. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. I want to share with you some thoughts about the entering in of Jesus from a revival sermon that was preached many, many years ago by Beverly Carradine, a wonderful, godly man of the word. As he preached and taught the presence of Jesus coming in great power. So I want to share with you now an outline of the steps necessary that Christ should come into our hearts, that Jesus should dwell in us and with us. The first step, Jesus must be invited. 
Now, it's true that he has a right to come. And it's true that his coming brings a blessing. But such is his nature and such is our nature that he will not come unless he is asked to come. It's curious to see how we wait for an invitation before going to certain places and yet look for the Lord to force himself upon us. I notice that even kings of the earth expect and tarry for invitations to visit cities and nations. So does the king of heaven. He never comes to dwell with us until we ask him. He's not going to just come on his own. He's only going to come where he is welcome to come. Where you invite him to come. Now the second step is that Jesus must be earnestly desired. We all find it very difficult and oftentimes an impossible thing to go where we're not wanted. The fact that we're longed for and expected makes for us a sunlight of happiness and generates an atmosphere in which the soul is perfectly free in it and at its best. There are places where I have not felt wanted and it was almost impossible to go. But there are places where you are desired and you are feel actually drawn as by a magnet to that individual or family or circle. It's well for us to remember that we're made in the image of God and that he has transplanted or reproduced in us certain sensibilities and motions of the divine breast. It's evident that the Savior is much freer in some churches and in some lives than in others. He's not able to do mighty works in certain hearts and localities because of all the unbelief. So he's powerless to reveal his most delightful features or even to show himself at all to some persons or places because he's not wanted there. Jesus does not propose to come where he is not wanted. Now, the reason can be found in our free agency and in the sensitivities of the divine love. But only let us sigh for his presence and yearn for his companionship, and he will suddenly and gladly appear in our midst. He is the desire of the nations already in being what we need for salvation, happiness, and usefulness, but he must also be desired with ardent longings of the heart if we would possess this chief among ten thousand and one altogether lovely. So first, we have to invite Jesus. Secondly, we have to want him. Now the third step is much more involved. We must prepare his way. We read in history that when earthly kings determined to, pardon me, visit a town or province, 
But the people would always prepare the roads for his coming. Sometimes a special highway was constructed. And always work was put forth on the thoroughfare along which royalty was expected. Even in the reception of our friends, we see a preparation of this sort in the sweeping of the yard and the front steps, the removal of every unsightly thing and the putting in place still other things that would serve to grace the occasion and please the eye of the visitor. So we must prepare the way for the Lord. If there is no preparation, he will not come. This fact explains why some men are totally unconverted and others unsanctified. They've not done the things that the Lord desires and demands. It's also well to state that some preparation is no preparation. There was a certain protracted protracted meeting. It was projected on a great scale in regard to dimensions of the hall. It was a large hall. There were many, many chairs placed in it. There were lines of electric lights brought in. There was a broad gallery for the best singers in the city and a deep platform for prominent workers and preachers. Everything was furnished, but one essential thing, the falling fire of the Holy Spirit. Every preparation had been made, save the indispensable one of humbling the heart and prostrating the body and the soul in the dust before the Lord. This was never done. And so the gigantic material preparation came to nothing. What does God care? Chairs, lights, trained musicians, and general ecclesiastical display. If he gave the victory under such circumstances, men would suppose that the great platform and the big works did it all. Some preparation is no preparation. All of us are getting to see this. I saw once in one of the largest cities the walls placarded with flaming posters telling the public all, and all the ministers of the city had united in a certain meeting that all the choirs of these churches had joined together and that a most wonderful national evangelist would lead the battle. This famous meeting dragged its way along for a month and ended as it began in wind. It's still another city. Churches combined to get a revival started. The 40 pastors sat on the great platform with leading lay people, and the great orders among them vied with each other night after night. But as a Holy Spirit revival, it was from start to finish an utter failure. It lasted about 40 days, and afterwards the people were hungry. The papers announced at the beginning that these 40 pastors were going to have a revival and the columns in the newspaper were devoted to the first few services. Something was lacking. And the press finally quit reporting. It started with a great spurt of energy, but it ended 
feeble and short-lived. Some preparation is no preparation. What are carpets and chandeliers and curved pews and trained musicians to God? Does he care for these things? Can he who hung our sun out in space and the moon and the stars for lights and painted the western sky and carpeted the earth and put melody in the wind and the wave and the throats of myriads of birds, can he be bribed into coming to us by our tawdry ecclesiastical finery and platform and yelling? He dealt once for centuries in a tent and filled the log meeting house of our forefathers with his excellent glory. I was in a church yesterday. The pastor had to stop because one of the congregants was shouting so loudly and praying so fervently and pointing their finger and it was loud and long. The pastor was very patient. But nothing was done, nothing happened. It was a big show. This is not what the Lord wants. He wants another kind of preparation. Some preparation is no preparation at all. King Saul, you remember, got ready for him in his way. But for the king of Israel, it was his way and not the divine way. He even became so impatient to have the Lord to come that he offered the sacrifice with his own hands, but the skies were locked. There was no response. He afterwards said about what happened with a bitter wail, He answereth me no more neither by prophets nor by dreams. God was both silent and invisible. He will only come in his way. Some preparation is no preparation. The prophets of Baal slew their sacrifices and placed it on the altar and cried from morning until noon. They even cut themselves with lances until their blood gushed. But there was no answer from the skies. The great vault above was empty, still, echoless, as if there were no God. We must find out that some preparation is no preparation for revival. The sooner we can discover this, the better. The church that waits unavailably on God for days and nights without answering fire from heaven may reasonably feel alarm and the man who declares he is seeking God and cannot find him who says he's done all he can and Christ does not come into his heart and life he may know once and for all that he has overlooked some heavenly condition neglected some essential duty in a word he has not prepared the way of the Lord we're told in Isaiah 40, verse 4, we're told what this preparation is. It's repeated again in Luke, the third chapter, verse 5. Every valley shall be filled. This was what was done in constructing a highway for earthly kings. The valleys were exalted or filled up. 
The spiritual meaning is that if we desire the Savior to come into our lives, the great vacancies and hollows of life standing for neglected prayer, omitted Bible reading, and other forsaken duties must be attended to. There are many such ignored and despised obligations. Like valleys, they yawn before us, and how deep they are! They must be filled! Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. This was necessary to make a road, a road worthy for a king to travel upon. It is what is done today to give us the iron thoroughfares of commerce. The valley is filled up and the hill is cut down. It's what we're to do to get Jesus to enter our churches and hearts with Glorious power. Pride is a mountain. Unbelief is a mountain. There are many high things that have to come down before the Savior will sweep into our souls. The crooked shall be made straight. If earthly monarchs desired straight highways upon which to travel, how much more does a holy God? Jesus will not come to the soul upon any other than a straight way. He will not travel upon a crooked route. Before he saves Saul of Tarsus, he made him move on a street called Straight. And on that same street, we all have to live if we would know Jesus. We must do the straight thing get straight with everybody and determine to live the straight life. The instant a man does this, the Spirit rushes into him. The moment a church gets right with God, the Lord will enter. Men ask God to straighten them, but it's our duty and our work. The command to us is, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. I've never failed to notice that if a man will straighten his outward life, God will straighten the inward nature. This is not a salvation by works, but this is a changing of conduct and life without which God will not look upon us, much less fill us with his glorious presence. Now let's look at this straightening, which is preparation that Christ demands as the condition of his coming unto and into us. Now first, first is repentance. This is not only in the order, but in the very necessity of things. We must grieve with godly sorrow for what we have done or left undone toward God. Just as the hand is not extended, nor smile given by the parent if the child shows, shows no compunction, no willingness to obey, so are the heavens like brass, and God is silent to the impenitent soul. But let the heart begin to swell with grief. Let the lips say, I'm sorry. 
And ere the tears can fall from the eyes, the angels are rejoicing in heaven over this scene. They know what it means that the skies are opening and the Spirit descending and salvation rushing to the soul. In Ezra, we read that the Jews trembled before God at the remembrance of their transgressions. The rain fell upon them and they stood in the street, but they endured every discomfort that they might find peace with God. Of course, the divine blessing came. When I stood at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, I had a vision of the luxury and blessedness of tears. Oh, that people everywhere would begin to weep before God. Oh, for milded hearts and wet eyes in every pew of the church as well as around the altar. These very tears would be as a telescope to the penitent soul to see into the heavens and as a mighty influence to bring the Lord down into our hearts. A weeping or grieving child draws the parent instantly to its side, and so thank God it's the same in the spiritual life. This work of repentance is so difficult because pride rises up and stands and says, do not repent. It's their fault. If they just behave, I wouldn't feel this way. No, repentance is something I must do. Repentance is my turning from that proud position and saying, I'm sorry. Anger is a sign that there is no repentance. Impatience, hostile words are a sign there is no repentance in the soul. And God will not honor that in a man or in a woman. Repentance is turning from that evil thing. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's turning from it. And it's saying, I won't go that way again. Now, another preparation that is absolutely necessary is the forsaking of every sin. It is utterly vain to expect Jesus to take possession of us To expect Jesus to take possession of us when we are yet committed to sin in the life. The face of the Lord was turned from his people at Ai because of a single transgression until the golden wedge and Babylonish garment buried under the tent was dug up and burned. The divine countenance remained averted and Israel blundered about in the darkness, confusion, and galling defeat. If I regard sin in my heart, says King David, the Lord will not hear me. Imagine someone working in a store, and he comes asking for forgiveness of the merchant and he yet has the stolen money in his pocket. What if the merchant knows that he has the stolen money? 
How can one ask and the other extend pardon? The thing is morally impossible. The Bible distinctly states that it's our iniquities, it's our sins that separate us from God. If this be so, then the giving up, the giving up of these iniquities, these sins, must be the condition of restored divine nearness and favor. I've heard people repeatedly affirming the impossibility of living without sin. I've wondered at the ignorance shown in such speeches. So far is it from being impossible for a child of God to live a blameless life, the Bible distinctly states that the unconverted man himself must cease sinning before God will pardon him. In Isaiah 55, 7, we read, Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you understand? Repentance is based on an absolute conviction in my heart and in my soul that I am in sin and destruction is about to fall upon me. And I run to the Lord God of heaven with no intention of continuing that wicked behavior. Any man who says, I cannot stop sinning has never truly met Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gives the power. He's the one who cleanses and makes whole. He's the one who gives birth. Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I can guarantee you there are no crippled children being born of heaven. We are born in Jesus Christ, washed and made clean and made whole. If you today still believe that you cannot stop sinning, you are simply excusing your sin because you love your sin. Now please, I want to speak briefly to some of you who are deep in drugs alcohol, prostitution. You are deep in lying, embezzling, cheating, stealing. You're deep into pornography. You're deep into alcohol or tobacco. You're deep in gambling. You're deep in sin. Jesus wants to call you now to himself and he will deliver you. He will wash you. He will make you clean and he will establish you in a whole new life. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to choose life today. He wants you to turn and prepare yourself for his coming to you. And that means you renounce those wicked things that you have loved. 
you renounce them and you turn to Jesus and you earnestly desire him, you ask him, please come, please enter into my life, please rescue me, and he will come. Now there is a third preparation that is necessary. That third preparation, it's included in repentance, but I need to speak about it separately. And that is restitution. Restitution is when I choose to make right what I have done wrong. It's amazing how careless some people are here. They give up the ballroom and the theater, the clubs. They give up their wickedness at the demand of the gospel. And yet they cover over certain wrongs of the past that have to be rectified. The Savior himself distinctly tells us when we come to his altar with our gifts and remember such a wrong, to hunt up that hurt brother or sister and make all right with him first and then come to the altar. Zacchaeus, remember the story? Jesus came to his house. They ate together. And Zacchaeus, under deep conviction as a tax collector, as a cheater, as a thief, he stood up and he said, If I have taken anything from any man, I restore him fourfold. Restitution is when I go and make right what I have done wrong. Some of you have spoken ill of a brother or a sister. You have spoken lies. You have spoken judgments. How long can you live with those wicked thoughts and those wicked words and the great damage you have done in the life of another or in a church? In your pride, You thought you were right. But you know your behavior was wrong. How will you make restitution for that? See, it's not enough to just come to Jesus and say, please forgive me. Not when we have hurt others. Not when we have done damage to others. Either by stealing from them or hurting their reputation, gossiping about them, condemning them. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry. Restitution has to be made. Zacchaeus said, if I have taken anything from any man, I restore it fourfold. What do you need to return? 
Have you stolen things from work? Are there things in your personal office at home that you stole from your office at work? Stamps, pens, paper. Have you stolen from another? Have you done things and said things against another that has caused great offense? Then what are you going to do with that? How will you make that right? Recently, a pastor told of a man whom he had met in the West who had become deeply convicted in the meeting. He went repeatedly to the altar but could not obtain the grace of pardon and salvation. He gave charitable explanations. He gave intellectual answers. But one day while walking with the evangelist, A confession was blurted out that some years before, while driving his cattle over the plain, a stray cow had gotten into his drove, and he sold this stray cow along with all of his own. Now, he said, when I come to the altar, I see that cow dashing before my eyes, and she fairly fills the landscape. The preacher replied, you must return her value to the owner. This the man said, I've determined to do. And he did so. And as he did, the joy of forgiveness swept into his soul. The animal was only worth $20, but it was everything to him who had identified himself with every wronged individual on earth and who is preparing a world for the pure and the true and the good. I don't want to rush over this because... This issue is so big. God always takes the side of the wronged party. He always takes the side of the one who was hurt, who was accused, who was cast down, who was judged. And restitution must be made before one can walk in the mercy of God. Pastor Carradine says one of the greatest revivals he ever witnessed began with five or six public reconciliations one morning in church. A woman impelled by the Spirit of God arose and openly begged pardon of another lady in the audience. In 20 seconds they were in each other's arms. A grown daughter flew into the arms of her mother from whom she'd been estranged. Two other persons stood up and asked the pastor to forgive them for having talked about him. Tears running down his face, he extended his hands to them, telling them he had not a doubt that he deserved the criticism. Two gentlemen met each other in the aisle, locked hands, and while one confessed, the other forgave. In a moment, they were embracing with happy smiles. So it went on, and heaven came down, and the glory of the Transfiguration Mount seemed to fall on the whole assembly. 
I've beheld many wondrous scenes of grace. But for the tenderness of spirit, the milding hearts, flaming love, and pure heavenliness, I've scarcely ever seen anything that surpassed the history of that morning. The revival broke out that very hour and swept on for two years. It's only another way of saying that Jesus came down and took possession of the church. Now, there are also other things that must be done in preparation. There are certain duties and obligations to God that must be cared for. There are such divine debts and duties. The life of Christ is not confined simply to human relations. There are two tablets of the law, and the first had reference entirely to what is due to the Lord. We owe things to men, but we also owe things to God. We pay the butcher and the baker and the doctor. We we pay at the grocery store. We also need to be right with God on the financial as well as along other lines. It's amazing to see how men keep their accounts straight with their fellow men and yet are careless in their contributions and obligations to the church, which is the abode of their God. If you've made a pledge to God, keep your pledge. If you owe God tithes and offerings, then give unto God what is necessary and you will prepare the way for his coming to you. If you are selfish with God, you will lose. If we look at the dwellings that are by the thousands lining the streets of our cities, you'll find that the vast majority have their mortgage account paid up to date, or if they're renting, their rental account is paid to debt to date. But over against that is the sorrowful and amazing fact that with the exception of one or two endowed buildings, there's not a church in all the land but has had or will have some debt upon it. Deficits in the missionary treasury, deficits in the preachers and the sexton's salary, debts unsettled for utilities and past services. Meantime, the church wonders why everything feels so spiritually barren and dead. They're serving a God who calls himself a jealous God and yet wonder why he does not bless them and make them overrun with spiritual life and gladness when he sees every debt but his own paid while reproach gathers thereby on his servants, his house, and his cause. A certain large southern city. They'd been holding a meeting for quite some time, over a month, without any mercy from God. The skies were closed. There was no power of revival, no sound of salvation. The best of preachers were holding forth and the most eloquent of prayers and the finest of singing echoed along the arched walls and the staccatoed ceiling. Still the fire did not fall and Jesus would not manifest himself. One morning, A gentleman belonging to the church requested other men to meet him in the lecture room, and on assembling he said, You all know, brothers, that we've been trying to secure a revival here for weeks. We seem no nearer to it today than we did a month ago. The question is, what is the matter? 
that something is the matter all can see. Has it occurred to you that the trouble is that we have been carrying a church debt for $15,000 for over 10 years? And has it occurred to you that we as a congregation are amply able to pay it? It is my firm belief that God will never come down and fill and bless our church until we settle this obligation. I, for one, will give $1,000. What will you do? And this debt of $15,000 in our day would be a hundred or $200,000 at least. In less than 15 minutes, the debt which had been for years a thorn in their sides, a reproach to their church, and a grief to God was paid. The same evening, in the next service, the heavenly fire fell, and the power of God came down. And the revival that followed saw hundreds of souls swept into the kingdom of God. Now the fourth step or condition of preparation for Christ coming to us is that he must be earnestly beseeched to come. You see the order? First, we invite Jesus to come. And there's a desire in, his, in our heart that he would come. And then the way is prepared. And then there must come a great crying out in our heart. And I have a cell phone on. I apologize for that. I was using it just prior to our beginning this broadcast to call our producer. So the fourth step that we must take to prepare the way is that we must desire with all of our heart that Jesus would come. Even after having been invited, even after we've prepared the way for him to come, he must be entreated to come. It's not enough to ask and desire. We must entreat him to come. A simple invitation to Jesus will never be enough. Many have come and they've said, I've tried with all that I know to do to ask Christ to come into my heart. Now, why doesn't he come? And how carelessly they spoke about the matter. No wonder Christ did not come. If the Seraphonician woman had stopped with her first request, she never would have received that glorious look and heard the thrilling words, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. She swept past the realm of careless invitation and got down to begging, and she conquered the careless invitation 
is not regarded anywhere. Suppose you try it on someone, or let someone try it on you. Let some person with an absent-minded look and a heedless manner say, Hey, why don't you come down and see us sometime? Do you go? Have you not had thousands of such invitations and to which you paid absolutely no attention afterward because you knew they didn't really mean it? But suppose the invitation is after this style. You must come down and see us. My wife often speaks of you, and the children constantly ask after you. The whole family told me today to be certain to bring you. Now when will you come? Do not put it off until tomorrow. Say you will come today, that you will go with me. Would you go with me right now? I can't let you off. Won't you come? Come on, let's go. Of course you'd go. How could you help it? And then it was so pleasant to be thus constrained by people who loved you and whom you loved. Do you know that God can be constrained and that he loves us to press our suit upon him? Jacob never uttered more delightful words to the Almighty than when in that midnight wrestle he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Just afterwards the word says, And he that is God blessed him there. And right there is such a spirit and determination and waiting God blesses. I've had people to tell me that their idea is to tell God what they want at once and then let the whole matter alone. These persons have not read the Bible with understanding, and certainly they do not know yet the secret of victory in prayer. Abraham secured the angels by running after them. The disciples obtained the risen Christ by pressing him to come and eat with them in Emmaus. The woman from Cana got her entire request by hanging on to Christ in spite of three distinct rebuffs. The Capernaum nobleman invited the Savior to come down and heal his son. The reply would have discouraged many whom you and I know, but the nobleman, turning his tear-filled eyes upon Jesus, said, Come down, Lord, ere my son dies. He begged, and Jesus went. Have you invited Jesus to come into your life? It's not enough. Do you desire him? Well, the land is full of people who desire but do not get him. This also is not sufficient. Have you prepared the way for him? Yes, you say, but still he does not come. Then the explanation is that you have neglected the beseeching you do not understand why that should be done. Never mind about understanding it. Only do it, and you will soon have reason to praise God for having done so forever and ever. This I have found that he who prays most knows most of God and possesses most of the Spirit of God. Men like Luther and Wesley and others prayed three hours a day, not only obtained the mind of Christ, but also the deepest secrets of heaven. I've also found that persistent prayer will cause Christ to enter any life and descend upon any church or community. The question is, who can bring this about? 
I answer, any town or nation can bring the Lord down upon the people. Nineveh clothed itself in sackcloth and turned to God with lamentations and prayer. And the Almighty rolled away its iniquity and smiled in pardon and peace upon the troubled inhabitants. Again and again, the Jews as a people and a nation would humble themselves before God in time of defeat and affliction. And the Lord would descend with mighty power scattering their enemies and filling them with songs of praise and shouts of victory. It can be done today if the people of any country would assemble in their churches and call on God with repentance, turning from sin, looking to Jesus. Heaven would answer in grace and glory, and no matter to what the nation or church had drifted or sunk, it would be lifted up from that very hour in honor in prosperity and happiness and blessedness. Tonight we will have a revival meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church. We're praying. We're crying out to God. We're making the preparation. We're making the preparation and we are pleading with Jesus to come in power. Now, the meeting will begin at 7.30. The doors open at 7 at the All Saints Anglican Church in their main sanctuary. And the address is 148-14851, Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia. We're praying you will come. We're praying that God will move in your heart that you want to make preparation for the coming of Jesus in your heart and your life. <laughs> You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you today. I love you. I'm praying for you. Join me in praying for revival in our land. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 